really do appreciate the fact that you have spent this Sunday with us. I want to do something as an introduction to my sermon. Sometimes, just like I said, you know, communion can be very sanitized and it's a clean little cup with a nice little piece of bread. And I want to bring the realism of it home. I want to bring home also the realism of the fact that while Jesus Christ is God, he came to earth as a human being. He was every bit human and he felt the pain that we feel. And I can only imagine the angst and the anguish in Mary's heart and in Jesus's heart. Because though he was God, he came to earth as a man and he knew what was ahead of him. He knew the agony of the cross. He knew the departure from his physical, biological mom. And uh, sometimes we need to appreciate the realism. I'm going to be preaching on the four cups of Passover and what that means. Are there four cups? Never heard that before. But just before we do, I want to take a leaf or a page out of Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. And we're going to show a video clip that really brings home to us the strength and the cost emotionally, both to our Savior and to his, his mother, his family, his disciples, the pain that they endured, but the pain he endured so that he could set us free. And so my video department is going to dim the lights and we're going to show this clip. It's just uh, something like 80 seconds long. Thank you. isn't it? Yeah. 
and uh, we're only watching it on a screen. Uh, soldiers, you can leave your posts. Thank you for serving. This morning I want to preach on the four cups of Passover. Our faith is the continuation of the Hebrew faith. God said to Adam and Eve after the fall, he turned to Eve after all the curses were li listed, both on the serpent and on uh, humanity, as a result of their decision, what their decision had released upon the earth. And God said, but woman through you will be a seed. And the enemy, the serpent, will bruise his heel, but he will crush the head of the serpent. I am so glad Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. When Abraham came on the scene, God told Abraham and Sarah that through them they would have a seed. And that through their seed would come a great nation. But through the seed, the promised seed, would come salvation for the whole world. And Abraham and Sarah finally miraculously gave birth to Isaac. And at some point God said, I want to see Abraham if you would do what I will do. And he asked Abraham to take this miracle child and sacrifice him on an altar. And as Abraham held up the dagger, God said, stop. I just wanted to see what was in your heart because I am going to send my son to be the ultimate sacrifice. We see the nation of Israel came out of the loins of uh, Abraham and Sarah and through their descendants. But we see that through the lineage of David, King David came one who was of his family line. It was prophesied that David's throne would rule forever. Israel was in anxious expectation in an atmosphere of Roman centurions and soldiers and uh, being oppressed, not being a free people. They were looking for a Messiah to overthrow this establishment, to overthrow the government. But there is a greater government that makes the governments of the world as mean and nasty and double-minded as they are. And that is the government of the kingdom of demons. The government of the kingdom of Satan himself. And before God can deal with the governments of earth, he had to deal with the spiritual entity and the government of darkness that influences the hearts of men and women. You all know what I'm talking about because you all know that you are capable of doing beautiful, wonderful, excellent things, but every once in a while, something starts speaking to you and tugging inside of you, and in the past, we've been capable of not so beautiful, wonderful things. I turn to the person next to you and say, he's talking about me. Because the sermon always starts with us. I'm talking about me. Amen. In the Hebrew faith, Abraham's descendants became a large nation, but they had taken shelter in Egypt. And for almost 400 years, they were slaves. Out of that 400, probably about 330 years, they were actually slaves. 
They had gone there for shelter during a time of uh, famine, world crisis. And they made their home there, but they became slaves to Egypt. And they were oppressed. And uh, God said, after the 400 years, it's time for my people to be set free. And this is where we have the first Passover. God had visited Pharaoh in his, in his arrogance and had brought numerous plagues to prove, stop resisting me. I am God. And every plague represented one of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And God showed the Egyptians how their gods weren't gods at all. Because the very symbolism of each god became a plague in their land. And then the very last plague, and the plagues were judgment. The very last plague was going to be the death of the firstborn of every household. Well, in the Hebrew faith, when they, they celebrate Passover, God had told uh, Moses to tell the people, sacrifice a lamb. I'm about to allow the enemy to slaughter the firstborn of every house. But if you sacrifice a lamb that has no blemish, a perfect lamb, take the blood, put it on the doorposts, put it on the lintel, and when that demon of death, that spirit of death comes and he sees the blood, he will pass over your house. And this is where we get the term Passover from. The blood of a lamb saved them. And so in the Hebrew Passover or cedar, they celebrate cedars regularly, but on Passover they drink from four cups. And the first cup is the cup of sanctification. Now last week I shared with you how Palm Sunday is the beginning of what is also known as Holy Week. Why is it called Holy Week? So I want you to understand your faith. I want you to have a rock-solid foundation. And the, the week leading up to Passover is called Holy Week because God told Israel as they were getting ready to exit Egypt and celebrate this Passover event that would spare them from the curse. He said, I want you to remove every trace of yeast or leaven in your house, it's symbolic of sin. I want you to cleanse the place. To this day, our Hebrew friends go to great lengths, especially amongst the more orthodox believers. They go to great lengths to have their house purged of every form of yeast or mold or, or leaven because it was symbolic of sin. And uh, the first cup is called the cup of sanctification. When they celebrate Passover for a whole week, they are cleansing their house, cleansing their wardrobes of any presence of yeast, and they go through numerous washings to emphasize that they are cleansing themselves of sin and making themselves ready for the great exodus, for the Passover. And so in preparation, this is what they would do. And uh, so beginning with Palm Sunday, it was Holy Week, a period where Israel uh, would check their hearts and check their homes. It's very interesting that at the beginning of Holy Week, Palm Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem and the people are acknowledging him as their Messiah. He goes to the temple and what does Jesus do in the temple? 
He cleanses the temple. You see, Jesus had to be the fulfillment of the law. Everything that God had told Moses was a pattern of things to come. And so Jesus goes to the temple, and there you have money changers who are taking opportunity to make a profit off of the people as they come. The poor would buy turtle doves. That's all they could afford. And I love the fact that even under the law, God made provision for those who didn't have great means. You know, that shows me God doesn't want anyone left out. Money doesn't make you. Yeah, money doesn't make you. God's eye is on the wealthy and the poor. His eye is on the poor and the wealthy. And so it wasn't that the money changers uh, were even making a profit. They were making an unjust profit. In Proverbs, God talks a lot about using unjust weights when they would measure out the value of wheat, they had weight systems to determine, okay, that's what we would call a pound or whatever term we want to use, whatever measurement. And they had weights that were supposed to equal that, and they would put weights that were heavier. And uh, so they would get more grain uh, for the price. And at the temple, as they're exchanging money, they're shortchanging people. So you got lies, you got deception, you got lust of money. Uh, you have oppression taking place. And the priests were okay with this. I would imagine, the Bible doesn't tell us, so this is purely speculation. But I would imagine that the priests, because they allowed them to be there, they probably got a cut off of the prophets. And so the first thing Jesus did was he went to what was supposed to be his father's house and he started dealing with the house. This is why Jesus said judgment starts at the house of God. Yeah. And uh, where we're supposed to look into our hearts and make sure that we are stepping away from things that would hurt him. Listen, when you really, really love somebody, be it your husband, be it your wife, be it your kids, be it a really good friend. When you really respect someone and love them, you don't want to do things that hurt them or offend them. And the same it is with us. I am a bride in waiting. I'm waiting for Jesus to come, and there's going to be a great marriage. You are a bride in waiting. This is like an engagement period. And we, the church, want to live like a bride that's worthy of the bridegroom that's coming to get her. Can I get an agreement? And so Holy Week, it was a time where they were removing yeast and leaven. And uh, this Jesus goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple. And then throughout the Holy Week, at the beginning of Passover, this is the cup of sanctification, the very first cup the cup of sanctification. And in the cedar, they drink from this first cup. And they acknowledge that they have to turn from sin. And uh, <clears throat> what's interesting is after Jesus cleanses the temple, in preparation for Passover, he gets his guys together, they rent a room, and they have a Passover, a cedar, 
And one of the first things that Jesus does is he takes off his outer garments. And uh, he tells his disciples, I'm going to clean your feet. I'm going to wash you. Again, the removal of sin, the symbolism. And so this story is told both in uh, um, um, when he cleanses the temple. It's in Matthew 21. It's in Mark 11, Luke 19. John doesn't record the fact that Jesus cleansed the temple. But John does record the fact that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. You see, what I love about the four Gospels is it's like a revolving perspective. It allows us to see what happened from different angles and different perspectives. So John leaves out the cleansing of the temple, but John is the one who brings in the fact that as they're about to have the Passover, Jesus takes off his outer garments and he starts to wash the feet of the disciple. I want to read this to you in John 13. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus replied, you don't realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter, this is symbolic of me sanctifying everyone who comes to believe in me. And so Jesus said, Peter, you don't get it. You'll understand later, but if you don't allow me to do this, you can't have part of me. Church, we want to live in a way worthy of the bridegroom who's coming to take us. Amen? He says, uh, no, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Peter replied, don't just wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my head, wash all of me. I I love the kid-like enthusiasm of Peter. He often stumbled over his feet and stumbled over his mouth. Uh, his enthusiasm was so great that at times he, he just, his words beat him up occasionally. You know, he'd say things that he was then held accountable for. Jesus fulfilled this cup. I want you to understand this. Unfortunately, it's not always understood in the church of Jesus Christ. You see, while the blood of Jesus will wash away the record of our sins, The blood of Jesus comes to deal with the sin nature inside of us. You could take all the leaven and all the yeast out of your house and still have sin in your heart. You could wash your feet, wash your hands, and and go through all the ceremonial rituals of being cleansed. But sin is something in the heart. One time, the Pharisees were criticizing Jesus, and they they said, did your disciples wash their hands like the law prescribes before they ate? And Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man's mouth and into his belly that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of his heart. And what I love about the cup of sanctification is, yes, 
The blood of Jesus erases every stupid, boneheaded, and every embarrassing thing that I've ever done. It erases, it covers over, it blots out every hurtful, shameful thing I've ever done. But that's the list of my sins. Not the least, the list of my sins. But Jesus didn't just take yeast out of the house. He took yeast out of the owner of the house. And so through the blood of Jesus, yes, he forgives us of our sin, but only he can change our nature so that from a sin nature that we receive from the first Adam, when we're born again into Jesus Christ, we receive a new nature, a nature of righteousness, a nature of godliness. There is a power. If you've asked Jesus Christ into your heart, there's a power sitting inside you that not enough preachers talk about. There is a power of righteousness. There is a power of godliness. You know, we've gotten hung up on a phrase that was written in hell, and the phrase is, well, I can't help it. No, because of the blood of Jesus, we can. And because of the blood of Jesus, I don't have to be a slave to sin. Because of the blood of Jesus, I am not a puppet anymore. And Satan isn't my master anymore. Because of the blood of Jesus, I am forgiven, but I am a new creation. I am changed, praise God. There is power in the blood of Jesus to not only forgive us of sin, but to change the nature and the condition of our heart. And so we drink of the cup of sanctification when we embrace Christ. The second cup is the cup of plagues or wrath. And uh, this is the cup where God commanded Moses to tell the people, slaughter an innocent land. There is a curse on the earth. There was a curse coming on Egypt. How many of you know that the whole world is spiraling out of control and it's under a curse? Okay? Maybe some of you have been involved in the occult or witchcraft or santaria and you understand this realm of the supernatural. There are demonic forces and there are curses and people can put a curse on you. But thank God we are under the blood of Jesus Christ and the curse of the world and the curses of demons just fall off of us because there is a greater power covering our lives. Are you with me, church? And so symbolically, while the Hebrews drink of the second cup, which is the cup of plagues or the cup of wrath, God's judgment on the world. We now drink this cup of the lamb that was uh, sacrificed. This is the cup that Jesus picked up in Passover and he shared it with his disciples. You see, something we don't realize as Gentiles that Jesus was the complete fulfillment of the law. And so while the gospel writers don't mention every one of the four cups, Jesus would have drunk with his disciples the cup of sanctification. And then when he took up this cup that we know of, that we often refer to in the gospels, this is the cup that to the Hebrews, 
delivered them from wrath. It delivered them from the curse of Egypt. And this is the cup that Jesus picked up. He said, this is my blood. I'm the Lamb of God. You know how in the Old Testament, Moses told your, your ancestors to take that lamb and to cover the doorposts? This is my blood which is shed for you to redeem you from the curse that is on the world. Listen, if you're a born-again believer, I want you to know what's inside of you. If you've asked Jesus Christ into your heart, you're not just Joe Blow one day going to heaven. You are the Son of God here and now on earth. And all the garbage of the kingdom of darkness, that is not your bread. That is not your destiny. That is not your place in life. We have been given the right and the authority through the blood of the lamb. The curse is not part of my existence. Hallelujah. Jesus's Salvation, the sacrifice he made, starts by repealing the curse that was on us. Do you know that when they celebrate the cedar and they come to the cup of the plague or the cup of wrath, who's in charge of putting this tablecloth on here? You? Can I dirty it? When they do the cedar, they take from this cup and 30 drops, it must be sanctified. It won't get dirty. They got one, two, three, four. They put 30 drops of blood before they drink the cup. 30 drops of the vine on the tablecloth. And then they drink from the cup. 30 in the Bible is symbolic of blood. You see, Zechariah says that 30 pieces of silver were paid for his life. Judas betrayed Christ and handed him over to be the sacrificial lamb. The 30 pieces of silver. And when guilt had struck his heart and they were about to crucify the Christ, Judas ran back into the temple and he said, I don't want your money. He, he's an innocent man. I don't want your money. And they said, we don't want the money back. We got what we want. We have our prize. And Judas threw the money on the temple floor and the priest said, that's blood money. We cannot take it into our treasury. And so it was used for a field to bury poor people. So when they drink the second cup that they celebrate that they were spared from the wrath of God. This is why Jesus said, this is my blood. It's a new covenant. You and I aren't born under a covenant of God's wrath. We are born under a covenant of God's joy. We are born under a covenant of God's blessing. I want to drink this cup. You see, this is the cup we just drank from. The blood of Jesus protects us from the curse, the curse of sickness, the curse of confusion, the curse of oppression, the curse of rejection. Listen, as a born-again believer, stand up to the devil. He's a liar. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. If he can convince you he has the right to 
to oppress you with depression. If you believe that lie, you will receive the curse. If you will believe the lie that you're going to be sick and you're going to die at an early age, then you will receive the curse. But if you believe the blessing, you'll receive the release in Jesus' name. Amen. What's interesting is um, the third cup. With the second cup, we are redeemed from the curse. In Galatians 3.13, it says that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Sorry, Galatians 3.3, it says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who hangs on a pole or on a tree, on a cross. He became the curse. You don't have to carry the curse anymore. Don't let the devil whisper in your ear and say, well, you're not really a good person, so you sort of deserve this. You know what? We do deserve that, but grace is God's undeserved favor. So instead of the curse, we get grace. Turn to somebody and say, he's, he's really preaching now, isn't he? The third cup is the cup of redemption. Now this is fascinating. The third cup is the cup of redemption. This cup is drunk in celebration of being redeemed or brought out of Egypt. So the second cup, they're saved from the curse. The third cup is the cup of redemption. The blood of that lamb has redeemed them and now they make an exit out of the kingdom of Egypt. The redemption that Jesus paid, the blood, the cup of redemption has taken us out of the kingdom of darkness. Satan no longer has jurisdiction. He no longer has authority. He no longer has governorship. He no longer has say-so over your life. Anyone who is born again into Jesus Christ has come out of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom where demons kick you, spit on you, slap you, and put you down, and you have been brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is a kingdom where Jesus raises all of his followers into heavenly places, and we are seated with him. Hallelujah. Redeemed by the blood of the lamb, a ransom price has been paid. He paid the price to win us from Satan's control and influence. But I want to show you something really cool here. We understand Jesus cleansed the temple. He, he washed the feet of his disciples, the cup of uh, sanctification. We understand the cup of plagues and curses he shared he said this is my blood shed for you it's a new covenant you're not under judgment you're not under the curse you're under the blessing in the third cup the cup of redemption when did Jesus drink it you see he's the fulfillment of the law when did Jesus drink the third cup because the gospel writers don't tell us about him drinking the third cup in the cedar or in the Passover Watch this. In Matthew 26, verse 39 to 40, also in Matthew 14, 36, and also in Luke 22, 42, John doesn't 
mention what I'm about to read from the other three Gospels. It says that he went to the Mount of Olives to pray. And going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. You see, this third cup is the cup of actual redemption. And Jesus is saying, take this cup. He just celebrated the second cup with his disciples. He just celebrated the first cup. And then all three gospel writers say and record the fact that in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his crucifixion, his humanity is speaking. And as a man, he says, if it's possible, do this without me. How many of you, knowing that God has called you to do something, have whispered a prayer and said, God, if you could do this without me, now's the time to show up. (laughs) I, I whisper that prayer on a regular basis. The disciples didn't understand. Watch me, stay with me. When the soldiers came in the garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives to get Jesus, Peter pulls out his sword. These are temple guards, not the Roman soldiers. He was handed over to the Roman soldiers later, but these were the guards, the soldiers of the Pharisees, the temple guards. They came, and Peter pulls out his sword, and he swings wildly through the air, and he cuts off one of the soldiers' ears. And Jesus bends down, picks it up, and says, Ear, ear, That was a joke. (laughs) And he heals the man and put his ear back in place. He loves his enemies. And maybe you've been running from God and you've been like an enemy to God and you've been angry at God and you've blamed God for everything. I got news for you. He doesn't do tit for tat. When I'm yelling at God and I've been angry and when I've run away from God, He just kept loving me in return. And he put my ear back in place. He kept healing me until he won me with his love. But listen to what Jesus says to Peter. He says, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This is the third cup. Now watch How John unfolds this, this is so phenomenal. John chapter 19, just one chapter later, only a few moments later, later, John 19, verse 28 to 30, later, knowing that everything had now been finished, John is saying, Jesus is on the cross, later, knowing that everything had now been finished, And so that scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Knowing that everything was coming to an end. So that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Well, I got to tell you, I've searched the scripture. There is no prophecy where the Messiah is prophesied to to having said, I am thirsty. But watch this. So that. Everything could be fulfilled. This is so cool. Knowing that everything had now been finished, redemption is coming to its final phase. 
So that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine that had turned to vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant. When wine goes off and becomes vinegar, it's bitter. And just like the celebration of cedar, they would eat the bitter herbs and spices. And Jesus on the cross drinks from the third cup. And he says, it is finished. And he gives up his ghost and dies. The plan of salvation was fully activated. Every stage of redemption was now enacted and the blood has paid the final price. This is the cup in the garden that he said, Dad, if it's possible, take it from me. This is the cup he drank from on the cross. There's a portion in scripture where John and his brother James says, Lord, let us sit at your right hand side. And Jesus said, only if you could drink the cup that I'm going to drink from. And they said, oh, yeah, we, we, we could drink from that cup. And Jesus said, you will drink from the cup. But the cup of redemption only the Lamb of God can drink from. Okay? He knew they would drink from the other cups. But he was the only one who could bring redemption. And so at the cedar, they drank the first two cups Jesus drank the third cup that seals redemption, that finishes the act of salvation. And uh, when they gave him that sponge with the vinegar, the fruit of the vine, he drinks it and he gives up his spirit to testify it is finished. And he speaks the words, it is finished. That's the name of the series that I'm going to be preaching over the next few weeks Next Sunday, I'm going to start outlining what it means when Jesus says it is finished. But there is a fantastic plan of salvation, and he has covered every base. And Jesus is saying, this is it. The latter end has come to fulfill scripture. He says, I'm thirsty, and they give him the third cup, the cup of of redemption and his blood and his life expires on that cross and he has completed the plan of salvation. Somebody say thank you Jesus. You say well pastor what's the fourth cup for? This is cool. The fourth cup is in Hebrew circles when they do a cedar is the cup of praise. And I'm going to read to you Literally, I took it from a Hebrew site. This is what it says. It says, this cup is drunk after the concluding portion of the halals. That's uh, six psalms that are read. I went through that last week. Uh, after they are recited, according to Jewish tradition, this portion is focused on the future and asks God to redeem Israel and humanity at large and usher in the period spoken of by the prophets, a time when every soul, the soul of every living thing, will bless the name of Yahweh. At that time, all of humanity will come to the realization that God is good, and it is good to give him thanks, and that his name is fitting to receive honor and glory because he is the only true king. Hallelujah. 
And so the fourth cup speaks of the future. When God renews the heavens and the earth and the new Jerusalem comes back to earth. And the Bible says in Revelation 21, there'll be a new order. A new world order. Politicians talk about a new world order. And all we get is same old, same old. I don't care if it's the left or the right. Everybody wants to talk about a new world order. And we get the same old nonsense and the same old garbage. There is one who is coming who doesn't get voted in by the majority. He was put in by the Father himself. And he is bringing a new world order. And he's going to make everything new. And we drink to that cup with praise and thanksgiving. And we say, even so, Lord, come quickly. Here's an interesting thing. When Jesus had communion, and the three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talk about the cup of the new covenant, Jesus said to them, I will not drink of this cup again. I, in fact, what he says, let me be more accurate. I will not drink of this cup with you again until we're in my Father's kingdom. The fourth cup. You see, the third cup, he drank it, but he drank it alone. The lamb drank the cup of redemption alone. It was his blood that was spilt. But there's coming a day where the fourth cup in the cedar, we will drink together with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And there'll be a new world order. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? As we come to a conclusion this morning, I'm thrilled you're here, but I'm even more thrilled that you're hearing the gospel, hearing truths if you're a born-again Christian, hearing parts of the gospel maybe in a way you've never heard before, hearing it in a way that maybe someone's never broken it down. And I want you as a born-again Christian to have a great appreciation for what it took to get you to this place where you are born again and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And everyone who's born again said, thank you, Jesus. Awesome. But for those of you who have never gone beyond just going to church, going to church is a good thing. And if you're going to pick a church, I'm prejudiced. Come here. We're going to love on you. Going to church is a good thing, but going to church isn't what gives you a relationship with Jesus Christ. Going to church isn't what changes you on the inside. It's a good habit to get into. You're going to hear words of life. You're going to hear principles that you can build a business on, that you could build a marriage on, that you could build a family on. Because the Word of God is the answer to absolutely everything. There's nothing like it. But just going to church 
doesn't make the miracle happen on the inside. You see, there really is a miracle. When you ask Jesus into your heart, as surely as you were born through flesh and blood, you will be born again by the Spirit of God. And the very Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lamb, who died on the cross, now that you're covered with His blood, His Spirit will be where His blood is also. And He will come and live inside of you. And that's the greatest part of the journey, knowing that as incomplete as I am, He really does complete me. He starts to build me up. He starts to give me strength and courage, wisdom and knowledge. He starts to live not only in me, He lives through me. He lives through us. And while Easter is a great time for people to go to church, we're not hawking religion. We don't have membership books for you to sign up as you walk out. No, what we peddle with great honor is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This Jesus, yeah, we get excited, He's risen. But you know what's better than the fact that he's risen? He lives in me. And I have a relationship with him. Belinda, I know he lives in you. I see it on your face every Sunday. He lives in us. When Jesus becomes our Savior, it's not rules and regulation. It's relationship with God. He initiates it. And he inspires it. And he's the one who makes it alive. So religion can be good. It can be bad. In the name of religion, a lot of bad things have been done. But relationship with Jesus, Jesus never came to promote religion. He promotes relationship with the Father. Well, every eye is closed. I want you to close your eyes because I'm talking to you. Yeah, you came to Easter. Like I said, maybe somebody kidnapped you. That's why you're here. The family's going out to a restaurant afterwards. You've got to drag along. Whatever the case, whatever, God has you here. Because God wants to have a relationship with you. And I don't care how broken you are. I don't care how messed up you are. I don't care how many mistakes you've made. The blood of Jesus is big enough to cover it all. If you have never asked Jesus Christ in your heart, or if you did and you've walked away, the Spirit of God says, come on. Today is the day of salvation. Today. Come and live in the freedom He died for you to have. So while every eye is closed, if the Spirit of God is talking to you, if you realize you don't have Jesus on the inside. You don't have the same reason to jump and clap and shout and look silly happy like everybody else. And it's time to ask Jesus in your heart. So come on. Be real. Be strong. Be a person of integrity. The Spirit of God is talking to you. Talk back to Him right now. Raise your hand and say, I want Jesus in my heart. Come on, how many of you today are going to ask Jesus, thank you, I see that hand. Thank you, I see that hand. Thank you, I see that hand. That's awesome. Come on, who else? 
I see that hand. Thank you. Just went down. Sir, I see that hand. God bless you. How many others want to ask? Come on, church, start to pray. Who else wants to get right with God, wants to know that God lives inside of you? It's not about being good enough. It's about Him being good enough to receive us. Can I get an agreement? Yeah. Is there anyone else? Who else would like to ask Jesus Christ into your heart today? Another hand up the back. This is awesome. Church, put your hands together for everyone who has said yes to Jesus today. Amen. We're not just asking him to come into our heart. We're asking him to live inside of us. I can't think of a better way to conclude Passover than by leading people to Christ. I didn't count the hands, but I think we're somewhere six, seven, whatever. People, people, not numbers, are saying yes. And we salute you. The Bible says every person who says yes to Jesus, God throws a party in heaven and the angels get down and they get wild. Wild. Amen. There's a party in heaven right now. Those of you who raised your hand for whatever reason, I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to ask the whole congregation to be like a choir behind you and to do what I'm about to ask you to do. I want everyone to repeat after me. If you've already done this, then be the background choir for those that have raised their hand today and doing this, maybe for the first time. Would you close your eyes one more time and repeat after me, God, I believe, I sense your presence. Jesus Christ I feel it I believe you died on the cross for me I have slipped away I've never come to you but today Jesus Christ I welcome you into my life Jesus live with me live through me I am sorry for my mistakes some of them are pretty ugly. And I thank you, Jesus, that you don't just forgive me. You unplug the sin machine that is in me. Jesus Christ, I surrender to you. And anything I've handed over to the devil, in my foolishness, I take it back. And I say, Jesus Christ, have lordship, have ownership over all of me. Get in the driver's seat and lead me the rest of my life. Father, God in heaven, thank you for coming after me and making me one of your kids today. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Come on, everyone, put your hands together. That's awesome. Congratulations. Phenomenal. I recommend you get into a church where there's good teaching. I know of one I could recommend, and see me afterwards, I'll give you the address. I think you've been there. But truly, Listen, this is a journey. It's a life. It's a lifestyle. Amen. God loves you.
Now, if there's anyone here who's still wondering and questioning, friend, I want to tell you, you don't have to earn enough stripes for God to love you. He earned every stripe on his back through 39 whippings to prove he loves you. You don't have to become good enough. Just come as you are. Turn around and give someone a high five, a fist pump, don't miss. Or give them a hug if they're comfortable with that. And I want to welcome you to a blessed Easter. I want to welcome you to a lifetime of relationship with Jesus Christ. Folks, God bless you. And may the Spirit of God be with you every day. Amen. Amen.